Welcome back to the 127th episode of the Daily Flip Podcast. I'm your host, Alex, and today we're going to be flipping through some of the top stories, including two that talk about how the culture war is not even close to over and how it's actually getting a little bit hotter, and one talking about how the Saudis tried to push down the production of oil in order to raise prices, and it doesn't seem to be working. And, of course, we'll end today with our daily delight, a story meant to leave you feeling positive and ready to take on the day. Now, that's enough rambling for me. Let's jump in to our daily debate. So, of course, you've heard about the culture war at this point. If you're online at all, even if you're not online, if you're watching mainstream media, the culture war, the culture war, the culture war. The real question I have for my audience today is, is the culture war ever going to end? Or are both sides going to continually find issues that they can use as a wedge? Rather than using wedge policy issues like we've done in the past, are we just going to use wedge social issues in order to get a different segment of the population to vote for a certain party? I think it's more than likely because it means that they don't actually have to change too much policy-wise. But, you know, we'll see. Throw your comments down there in the comment section. I'd love to hear what you all think about this one. So let's jump to a first article that comes from the American Conservative, Front Royal on the Front Lines. So this is actually kind of hitting close to home for me because Front Royal is about one county over for where, from where I am right now, and I actually went to school there when I was a little bit younger. So when I first saw this headline, I was like, hold on, hold on, hold on, what's going on at Front Royal? Front Royal is one of those places that is calm, cool. You know, it's not hip or anything like that. It's kind of like a stop-by point for some people going down 66. Nothing controversial normally happens in Front Royal. Maybe the biggest thing is a game between RMA and some other school, and it gets a little ruckus or something like that. You know, you don't think of controversy, or you don't think of a battle on the front lines when you think of Front Royal. But, of course... The culture war affects everybody across the entire country, so it came to Front Royal. Quote, during a February visit to Samuel's public library in Front Royal, a four-year-old boy picked out a book. The disturbing material in the section launched a battle that many in Front Royal community rightfully deemed publicly funded pornography. Only a few months later, the people of Warren County would successfully lobby the Board of Supervisors to temporarily restrict 75% of over the $1 million library budget. Following the initial incident, a comprehensive list was compiled revealing a host of titles featuring sexually explicit material available to minors at Samuels. So let's pause here for a second. This is a controversy that you've heard a whole bunch about. Why are sexually explicit books in an area or in, in this case, they are in a section that it can be accessed and is normally frequented by younger children. And, you know, they are very unspecific here. The example is of a four-year-old boy, but then they use the term minor. And some could argue that, well, when you're 15, 16, maybe even 14, you should at least have the knowledge available to go and read about some of these different practices. And I don't necessarily know where I come down on that one. I haven't really f thought it through. 
I was told about the birds and the bees when I was in fifth grade. And, you know, I had my own curiosity from there. The Internet's a thing so kids can go out and find what they want. But should you really make it easy for them and having it in a public library? And I think, like I said, it's tricky on the higher end. But on the lower end, we should not be having any sort of sexual material easily accessible to these kids. And you may be thinking, oh, well, Alex, you're, you're just being homophobic. Oh, you're being transphobic. You're being this, that, and the other. You don't want them to learn about sexual practices that are a little bit different than what has been normally seen as okay within our society. And I would step back and say, you know, that's kind of a false argument on your part. And what I mean, at least to my point, which is I don't think that these kids should have any access to sexual material, homosexual, transsexual, heterosexual. No, 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 no. Before the age of 10, even before the age of 13, I believe that that discussion needs to be had between the parents and the child. Because one, there are a whole bunch of different situations, there are different family units. There are, at least in today's world, there are different family units. And each one has a different idea of how they want to raise their child. And their child, until they are of the age of 18, is their responsibility. Therefore, they can inform them about these acts how they want. If they think their kid lives in an area where they could be exposed to sexual experiences a little bit earlier, and they might be in a public school where you see some of this thing, these things come up and the parents really want to address it before their kid learns about it at school, then maybe you tell them at 10 years old. Or maybe you're homeschooling them, and you know the other homeschool parents aren't going to be talking about this until 13, 14, so you don't have to address it because it doesn't demand of you that you have that conversation with your kid. And that's something that's really missed out on in this culture war conversation, which is we inform our kids about sex and how to do sex, what the repercussions of sex are, not just because, oh, yeah, well, we should tell them because they're going to reproduce one day. That's obviously part of it. But also it's in a direct response to what's happening around them. If a whole bunch of kids who are 13 are having sex at the local public school, then you may want to inform your child a little bit earlier that you may feel comfortable with in order so that they don't get caught up in that and they don't go out and create a grandchild that you may have to take care of or a child that they will have to take care of and will dislodge their plans for life when they are not fully responsible or able to raise that child. So these are, it's very circumstantial and not even just, oh, well, you know, I feel like my kids should know this in general. No, no, no. Depends exactly where you are. If you're in a heavily Christian community where you don't think that sort of stuff is going on, you're probably not going to focus on that as much. If you live in a community where there are very little morals, or at least from a Christian perspective, very little morals, and where people are going to be having tons of sex before they're married or things like that. So this conversation is one that's raging, but I also feel like we're missing a key part of it, which is the parents aren't just saying what the kid can learn because they want to say what the kid can learn. They're telling the kid what they need to know in order to be prepared to live in the place that they live. And that is a parent's responsibility, not a library's responsibility. So there was a little bit of controversy here and the board of the library, or sorry, the library pushed back a little bit against some of these parents who were trying to really get this done. And there's a there's an interesting quote that talks about how the people in Warren County had to really organize, and also there's a more general statement about how the right needs to learn to organize. 
Quote, as David Hines has documented in pages of this magazine, there is a wide gap in competence of pressure campaigns on left and right. Quote, left strategic research, especially on large and complicated targets, is done mostly by people with training, practice, and the support to do it for a living, meaning people who work in particular jobs at nonprofits or labor unions. Righties don't have training in these skills. They don't get practice, and building the infrastructure for it isn't the kind of thing that righty grassroots think about. It's what righty donors fund, but we could change that, and we could be welcoming a start. The people of Front Royal understand this, and there's a foundation of course correction. So this is the idea that, hey, the left has been really good at mobilizing. They've been really good at going out there and pressing their issues. And that's why you may see some of these more permissive laws or regulations or even just rulings given by things like school boards or different co- county committees because they're willing to go out there even on the smallest grassroot level, even in their local county and say, hey, no, 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 I believe this. This is why this is good. And this is why there may be some detractors, but I think the good outweighs the bad, and you should implement this policy. The rights, while there is a lot of grassroots voting support on policy issues, that doesn't mean there's a lot of, what's the word I'm looking for here, a lot of grassroots protesting or pushing your agenda support. The grassroots movement on the right, or at least the small voting on the right is really strong. They have taken over a lot of state houses and senates based on their ability to have grassroots efforts across all the states. But there's an even smaller grassroots, which is, no, no, hey, we're not just looking at the state. We're looking at our local communities. And these people that are on the left, they either, as the article says, are well-funded to go out and change the policy in local areas, or they're just generally more passionate. A lot of people on the right nowadays, or, you know, put the right in the parentheses, the people that want to keep the social standard, a lot of them are like, hey, you don't mess with me, I don't mess with you, and then we won't have an issue. And some people on the new left are like, oh, no, 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 no. I believe in something so passionately that I want to go out and change it. Well, now you're starting to see a pushback. Now you're starting to see a lot of people on the right say, no, no, I believe in this so much. And then you pushing me, you have actually come on to my area, you've affected my child, and now we're going to push back against your stuff. So it's an equal and opposite reaction. And if the right did the same thing, if they started pushing really Christian virtues on a really low-key scale, and then 10 years down the road, liberals realize, oh no, they're being overly religious, they are being authoritarian in their way of addressing this and forcing down policies that affect my child a bad way, you know the left would do the exact same thing. So it's very interesting. You know, they always talk about the pendulum in American society. And of course, this is true. But it's always interesting to see how far it's going to swing from side to side. And that's why I think I asked that question at the beginning. Is the culture war just never ending? Because now politicians are, one, seeing, okay, these cultural issues, we can really capture on them right now. The populace is really hot on these. And also, because the pendulum always swings back and forth, there's always a little bit... People respond, and then they go a little bit too far in banning something or trying to get rid of certain policies. And a generation grows up under these new rules, and they realize, oh, no, no, we're going to be a little countercultural. We're going to push back. And then the pendulum flies to the other side, and you just have this back and forth. So, like I said, the cultural wars may become a permanent part of our American policy 
debate or at least politics. So we'll see how that comes out. But there is another aspect to this, which is the growing power that conservatives believe they have. And this is talked about in the article from National Review. Hey, remember when the Bud Light boycott was supposed to pass quickly? So obviously, again, if you're online, you know. The boycott, the boycott of Bud Light. Jeez, that is not a tongue twister, but I basically made it into one. Bud Light had done a campaign with Dylan Mulvaney, and a lot of conservatives didn't like the fact that that was happening, so they did a little boycott. And then Bud Light, instead of retracting, saying, oh, well, sorry we did that, we want to keep our values the way they are, they actually eventually, after about a month of realizing, hey, we're not going to get support from the right anymore, they doubled down, and now people are really, how should I say, they are really intent on messing up Bud Light and tanking the stock of AB InBev. So, you know, it didn't really work out for Bud Light on this one. So let's, uh, let's go straight to a quote from the article, because I think it sets the stage pretty well to have this conversation. Quote, Hey, remember when the conventional wisdom about Bud Light boycott was that it was a minor online activist-driven controversy that would have a few, if any, real-world effects? Good times, good times, as they used to say in those Saturday Night Live sketches that made fun of NPR. I am so old that I can remember that I was being told protests are feeble and storms often pass as rapidly as they have erupted you know, in late April. Now, as Carolina Dowie reports, Modelo Especial overtook the brand as the top-selling U.S. beer in May, and Bud Light distributors are lamenting to the Wall Street Journal, our year is screw. The sense that storms often pass as rapidly as they erupted may well be true, in the sense that some concerns of corporate America appears to be losing interest in trendy progressive causes as quickly as they embrace them. End quote. And so I showed you the first part, which is, hey, the people in these small counties, they're pushing back and they're having success. Now I'm showing you on a national scale the pushback against some of these more progressive ideas. And, you know, that's not even fair because I guess you could say progressive socially, not progressive overall, because progressive economically is a little bit different and it doesn't really apply here. But these progressive social values... There's now a national movement against them. A lot of companies are realizing, okay, now the conservatives, not even just the conservatives, even some normies, even some independents, they are willing to push back. They are willing to not spend money on brands that are pushing things that are not within their value system. And that is going to end up hurting a lot of these companies if they go through on some of these more explicit pride and transgender things. And if they give money to different organizations that support these different communities, people may end up boycotting them. Now, let's be clear. A lot of this can fly underneath the radar, and a lot of people won't even notice. But if there's an article, if there's a link, if they have access to a donation sheet and they see that, hey, Target gave this much money to this one group that supports this certain type of ideology, then they will most likely at least have a conversation about boycotting them, or at least boycott them for a week, see if it's feasible for them to do so, and if they can really have a big impact, then they'll keep doing it. You're seeing it with Starbucks now. They're taking down a lot of their pride decorations for Pride Month, and some people are speculating it's in fear 
of offending people who have more traditional values. And I would say that may play into it a little bit. It also may be that they just realize, hey, we did our like pride week. We don't need to be over the top about it. And we just want to get back to selling coffee. Maybe that's their mentality and they're not actually afraid of anybody. And the conservatives are just saying, hey, no, no, no. We want this opportunity to appear like we have more cultural influence. They want to tell their followers, a lot of the talking heads, that, oh, no, no, we have a lot of power. Starbucks could have just made an internal decision like, yeah, we did our pride thing. You know, we don't have to be too boisterous about it. Let's just get back to making coffee. That is possible. But the conservative outlets are really jumping on this, and they're trying to, and successfully trying to encourage people saying, hey, you actually have power. And that's what I think is actually more important about this movement. It's not necessarily that a lot of the pundits really want to boycott these companies. Some of them really do. There are other pundits who are probably sitting back being realistic, like, I don't care what Target does. I mean, I want them to try to be neutral, but at the end of the day, I'm going to go to Target anyway and get my this, that, and the other, the baby formula, the Legos for my kids. I'm going to get a dress. I'm going to get some shorts. They probably don't care that much, but the messaging itself is very important, which is if you want your contingent, if you want your group politically to understand that it has power, then, or outsized influence, because power is a tricky word, they have the ability to affect the outcomes, let's put it that way, then you're going to talk up these events saying, oh look, another boycott here, another boycott there, they're having an actual effect, oh Target's stock price is down 26 million, ah InBev is down for another straight week, Modelo's number one, and that's why you see this conversation continually popping up over and over and over again, because the conservatives cannot let it go. They want to encourage the people on their side to speak up if they don't believe in something. And this has been a long mission of companies like the Daily Wire. They even made this clear. We don't necessarily want to be the next Disney, but we want to be the company that forces Disney to say, hey, this part of the population we need to make sure that we're talking to them. And the best way to make sure that we are selling to them is to actually not sell other values and just be neutral, which is, of course, really hard in a digital media company, which I was actually thinking about the other day. Disney's in a really tricky position because you're going to propagate values anyway. And the thing about them in the past is they've been propagating family values, more American values, and that's great. But if they do a movie that is almost fully centric around family values and then one or two things is sprinkled in there because that is our modern culture and they're just trying to at least have an accurate representation of the times, then a lot of conservatives will completely boycott it based on that. Now, if they have a message that is completely antithetical to the American system and the American way of thinking, then of course, I think that is outrageous. And if they're constantly tearing at the social fabric, that's not a good thing. We shouldn't have companies in our own country, in our own society, trying to slowly rip apart the society. But I also think that this band and these boycotts could go a little bit too far. So there has to be a measured response here. Instead of saying, which I think is what a lot of conservative talking heads are saying, we need to get back to a place of neutral. I just hope that a lot of the more MAGA base or maybe some of the more puritanical evangelicals like Charlie Kirk don't actually, and I'm sorry if I'm calling you out by name, Mr. Kirk, you're never going to hear this in the world unless someone sends it to you. And even then, I don't think that you're a bad person. I just think that there are a lot of values that you hold that maybe you would want to pressure these companies or a lot of 
more of the radical, not radical, because he's not radical, but more of the strong-minded conservatives would actually want to push these companies to explain or outwardly support their values and not just be neutral in the system. And I think if that pushes too far, the left is going to come back with a dang hammer and try to bust up the pendulum altogether. So in this cultural battle, in order to actually calm things down and end it, which I don't think is necessarily possible, as I've explained before, but in order to end it, there needs to be a measured response. One side needs to acknowledge, okay, hey, we lost on this. If we push too far on this, then it's going to be a problem. So let's get back to a neutral point and leave it alone. That will probably never happen because politicians are going to get in. They're going to use these hot-button topics in order to garner votes, to go to town halls and really gin up the support. But that's the way that I think we move forward. And there's one more quote from this article that I really want to highlight. Quote, Bud Light target in a new era of corporate caution, laments New York Magazine. In that article, political scientist and management scholar Daniel Dermimer sorry, but mispronounce her name, warns companies, quote, I think this is a really treacherous territory because there are so few issues right now where there is a consensus. The temptation is to lead into poli- lean into political debates is a non-trivial one, but it can really come back to bite you, end quote. And this is exactly my point. We, we need, as a culture, we need to push every company back to the center and then let things ride from there. Not trying to, you know, pander to any one group or another. And of course, that is marketing. I do understand that these companies are going to try to market to different groups. That doesn't mean that you pander to them. Maybe you make a product that is meant for a certain segment of the population, sure. But that doesn't mean that you go on the back end and you give thousands upon thousands of dollars to organizations of that group. You just make the product that you think will work for them. Maybe you have pro-LGBTQ companies, companies that are specifically marketed to those groups, and then you can just leave it alone. You don't have to come out on politics. Obviously, you're pro-LGBTQ, but that doesn't mean that you're anything else. You can be pro-LGBTQ and be conservative or be liberal or be progressive. You can be an independent and be pro-LGBTQ. That's the beautiful thing. You can make these products for certain segments of the population, market to them, without having an outright political stance on particular issues. And that's what I think we need to move to. And you're starting to see this backlash on the stock market as well. ESG, companies are pushing back against ESG, even if it's in a really subtle way. There was an article that I read a while ago for the podcast, which talked about how a lot of boards are actually telling people to vote down these questions or addendums that are being proposed by small activist groups who are talking about ESG, environmental, social governance policies. And the boards are saying, hey, we don't want to get involved in this. We don't want to, they're telling the people to vote down these addendums so the board doesn't actually have to address them so they don't have to seem outwardly political and also use a good majority of time and resources in order to address them when it probably won't satisfy either side. So we're seeing a pushback now from the corporations, and we'll see how long it lasts. And we'll see if we'll be able to come back to neutral. If it starts going too far to the right in the future, you may see hear me come on here and criticize that as well, because I think the pendulum, for the most part, should be in the middle. The politics should be left to politics. The society at large should not be fighting over these things. And, you know, maybe that's a little bit milquetoast, and maybe people don't agree because, you know, culture is... Politics is downstream of culture, and these conversations do need to be happening. But I don't want it to be a question of my values. Every single time I go to a company and I have to say, 
oh, do I believe in this? Do I believe in that? Oh, well, are they supporting this group? No, I just want to get my diet soda. I just want to go into Shell and get my diet soda. I don't want to worry about what the company is doing on the environmental front. I'm sorry. Maybe I am part of the ignorant bliss group, but you don't always need to have these moral value and value situation, value system debates every time you go somewhere because it, it hinders your life actively. If you want to have those value conversations in the culture, go to these board meetings, these naturally political institutions. Sure, do it there. But leave the corporation alone. These corporations need to get out of the business of ESG. They need to get out of the business of supporting different political groups, and they need to be neutral and try to appeal to everyone without pandering to anyone. Now, that's going to be almost purely impossible. I understand that, and there's going to be outrage from all sides. But if you're able to carve out a spot in the middle, not just on the one side of the right or one side of the left, then you're going to get attacked from all sides, but that segment of the pie is going to be larger than if you're appealing to just one far end of the spectrum. All right, so let's jump to our last article before the Daily Delight, and this one comes from the Wall Street Journal. As Saudis sought to push up oil prices, markets have had another idea. So if you remember a while ago, the Saudis actually, and OPEC plus Russia, this, or I guess technically they're calling it OPEC plus now because Mexico's involved too, they actually cut the amount of production that they would be doing when it comes to oil. And this was in response to the decreasing demand after the pandemic. And they said, oh, well, we know, you know, right now prices are really high, but we see down, you know, down the line and a little bit further down the road, the demand for gas and oil is actually going to go down a little bit. So we want to make sure that we're hedging our bets and we're slowing our production so we can keep gas prices relatively where they are so we can keep making money for it. Well, you know, it didn't actually seem to work the way that they wanted to. And I think that though I have some idea, I think the Wall Street Journal can explain it a lot better than I can, or at least more succinctly. Quote, Saudi Arabia's move to reduce crude output was designed to prop up global oil markets. The past week has shown how difficult that will be. Prices have fallen in four of the past six sessions and have hovered this week near 2023 lows, with traders praising better-than-expected production by sanctioned countries, including Russia and Iran, and fears of an international industrial slowdown that could slow growth in fuel demand. The eurozone slid into a recession last week, partly because of the weakness in German export in the German export juggernaut. China's post-pandemic recovery has shown signs of losing steam, and the U.S., where much of the economy has proven resilient, the Federal Reserve on Wednesday signaled the potential for more interest rate hikes later this year. On Wall Street, even the most bullish analysts have cut oil forecasts in response. Speculators more speculators more than quadrupled shorted the position of U.S. crude between April 18th and May 30th, according to the Commodity Futures Trading Commission, while exchange-traded funds that track oil prices have seen outflows in recent weeks. So basically, the market is saying, oh no, the, the f- future for oil, the future demand is not going to be there 
Let's get out while we can. So you see the ETFs, they are draining. Sorry, exchange-traded funds, they are draining. People are like, no, 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 this is not a good time to be in oil. We are hopping out. And then what I found was interesting is that speculators, they more than quadruple shorted positions, meaning that they believe that the price of any company that's probably involved in oil, I don't know the exact positions they took out, maybe it's just a oil index in general, but they shorted it saying that it's going to be down in the future. And let's be clear, these shorts can run anything from a week to a month to a year, and I don't know all of the positions here. And it is a little bit tricky from the Wall Street Journal. For all we know, they took out a week short on the prices of oil, and they're like, oh, it's going to be down in a week, but it could be up after that. So it is a little bit tricky on the Wall Street Journal's part. But still, this shows that there is a sentiment that, hey, okay, we don't know what's going to be happening in the oil industry. We don't know what's going to be happening on the demand side because there's a lot of industrial slowdown across the world. So, hey, let's hedge our bets. Let's assume that there's going to be a little bit of a shock because of all this data coming out of China, how the eurozone slid into a recession. And let's, you know, let's say that the oil prices or at least the value of oil on these exchange-traded funds or the companies that produce these oil-based products are going to go down. So, you know, it's, it's really interesting. And it has been a bit of a, a back-and-forth volatile stretch for oil. Quote, the rocky stretch has dinged exporters, including Saudi Arabia, and knocked energy stocks out of a broader market rally driven by innovations in artificial intelligence. Shares in Chevron and ConocoPhillips this year have slid around 12%, while ExxonMobil is down roughly 4%. Quote, at the moment, we're kind of sitting on the sidelines of commodity markets, said Michael Kelly, global head of multi-asset for Pine Bridge Investments. Quote, many of us are huddled out in some sort of fixed income, end quote. So they're not seeing this constant growth for or the constant increase in demand for oil coming out of the pandemic or, sorry, I take that back, coming out of that quick surge that there was at the beginning of the war with Ukraine. So they're like, hey, we we need returns and we're not going to just have our money sitting in oil if we think there's not a future for it. So it's really it's really interesting to see because this is actually kind of what the Saudi government predicted, even though that it's coming back to bite them in the butt a little bit because they're having restrictions on the price or the production of crude. They did see these supply chain shocks and these demand shocks coming, and that's why they cut the prices or the, sorry, I keep saying prices. They cut the production of crude oil and because they wanted to keep the price high enough that they could still make enough money per barrel. So we'll see how this plays out going forward because if the Saudis think that, hey, it's not a good future, we're actually going to cut, cut production even more so we're not putting in a whole bunch of money and cost into getting the oil out of the ground when we're not going to be able to ship it anywhere. We may see another OPEC plus meeting like, hey, no, 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 we got to cut production even more to stabilize the price. And this is really key for Saudi Arabia because that's where a lot of their money comes from. They're obviously trying to diversify their economy. You see the live golf stuff. You see them investing in lots of different sports franchises, trying to get their name out there, be an innovation hub like you see at Qatar or in Dubai. So, We'll see how it plays out. We'll see if Saudi Arabia makes any drastic moves here in order to stabilize the oil prices with its conglomerate, 
or if they ride it out and they come out on the other side saying, huh, we told you there was going to be a downfall, and now that we've cut production, we can start increasing as supply and demand, or sorry, demand starts to increase, they can actually up the supply. So we'll see how all that pans out. But that's enough on the, you know, the doom and gloom stuff, the culture war stuff. Let's jump to our daily delight. This one comes from Newsweek. Fox Cubs transform homeowner's backyard into playground in adorable video. So, you know, sometimes you set up a camera to catch some cute little guys in the woods or in your backyard, but very seldom do you catch some guys coming around and playing. Quote, heartwarming footage that has surfaced online shows a gang of fox cubs have effectively transformed one Pennsylvania homeowner's backyard into their own playground. And, you know, honestly, I don't blame them. Sometimes these little houses, they got nice little fenced-in area. You don't have to worry about other predators coming to get you. You can goof around, have a fun time, especially when you have the homeowner leaving on little gifts. Quote, in the clip, they can be seen exploring their surroundings, play fighting with one another, and scarfing down plates of chopped-up sausages that the homeowner evidently left outside for them, end quote. So, yeah, this homeowner is full in. He's like, yep, I got some new fox friends, and we're just going to make sure that they're fed and they're having a good time. Good on them. And if you want to see any of the cute photos or videos from this article or read any of today's articles, there will be a link in the description below that like and subscribe button. Also down there, you can find the link to the podcast on Spotify, Pocket Cast, Google Podcasts, Podvine, as well as the Twitter handle at Your Daily Flip, where I've been posting Twitter tirades. They're Twitter-exclusive comments, only like 10 minutes, real quick, more just thought-provoking or interesting conversations rather than the full scripted thing that I've been doing here. And with all that said, there's only one more thing to say. Stay safe. Don't die.